This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. In 60 minutes, by the time this show ends, at least one person will die from gun violence in this country. Average statistics report that every day in America, 106 people die from gun violence. Every day, 2,010 people are shot and survive. Guns have become the leading cause of death for American children. Now, these sobering statistics should cause you to question the absurd gun laws in this country. And to that end, you have the ability to take action. Do it. And you're advised to listen to my conversation with Elizabeth Williamson on her exceptional and powerful book, Jory Lewis Sandy Hook. is an author. The link is written a book life where I have been Look for show number four, I've been immersed six, in now for the, for the last few weeks since it arrived. Coming up in the this book is edition of Life Elsewhere, for a conversation a with Carlos Allende on his dark, comedic, but poignant new novel, history. Coffee, Shopping, Jory Lewis, welcome murder, to Life Elsewhere. Love. Thank you First, for having me. This is, and I think I just said to you in my preamble, what a remarkable book. Thank you so much for writing this. This is, this is an education. It's a history lesson. It's a geography lesson. It's a humanity lesson. I mean, it's so many stories, and, and there's so much involved in here. It's just a remarkable book. I love every page of this. I really do. So here I am going on about how wonderful it is. So let's get into it. My first question to you is, is that I think at the, I think, I believe it's at the front of your book. You, you say something, there's a quote, you say, how do we tell the stories of people that history forgets and the present avoids? What a great quote. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it sort of speaks to the larger sort of inspiration for the book. Yeah. So the preface, um, I resisted for a long time, kind of, you know, the book's a history. So I, I resisted kind of putting myself into it. And my editor really did insist. He's like, you got to give a, a sort of way into the to the book for people. And so, yeah, I think it was kind of just like the background of my thinking ever since I sort of made this discovery, which I also describe in the preface, that there's this form of sort of discrimination based on descendants sort of still existed in some places in Senegal and in other places that I wanted to, to think about how could I uncover those stories? How could I tell, tell a story about these, these people or any people who are kind of lost to the, to the great beyond, you know? Yes. Yeah. So Senegal, it sounds very exotic. It's a name that I think a lot of us maybe have heard of and we go, oh, yeah, Senegal, that's some sort of exotic place far away in Africa, but we really don't know. I mean, I'm saying generally, I don't think we really know too much about Senegal, where it is, what it is, etc. Can you just briefly, for my listeners, just give us a little sort of overview of Senegal? Sure. Um, Senegal is, uh, or at least, you know, has the westernmost point in, in Africa. So it's a coastal country, uh, very, you know, it's relatively small. It's very small to me as an American, right? It's the, about the size of, I forget, is it South Dakota or North Dakota? One of the yeah. Dakotas at any rate. It's not very large. Um, it has about 15 or 16 million people. So pretty well populated for us. I think that's bigger than South or North Dakota. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So in it's a country that because I think of its placement like on the coast and it's relatively far north. So it's, um, you know, it's a part of the Sahelian belt at the very top. The north of Senegal is Mauritania. North of Mauritania, it's Morocco, right? And so then we're, yes. we're getting pretty close to the European continent there. So it's, um, it's a place that's, that's, you know, maybe from a European sort of context is both distant and, and near, right? It's kind of like just on the outer edges of where it was and the outer edges of their, their sort of consciousness, right? Yes. And I think from a very early point, 
you know, already even in the early 15th century, you have sort of European um, European mariners sort of sailing down and making contact with with people in Senegal. So you have a kind of broad sweep of history that um, the Senegalese people are are included in. And I guess even before that, right, there's a relatively, um, you know, there's a pretty large connection with the trans-Saharan, trans-Saharan trades of all kinds, whether it's slaves or spices and gold, all kinds of stuff like that. So that Senegal, again, in this area that is now what we call Senegal was, was a part of that. Yes, yes. And it also was, uh, as you say, uh, the, the, the point of departure for slave trade to the Americas. Yeah, I, I describe in the book a little bit, you know, because of course the book isn't really about the transatlantic trade, but you get a lot of things that the book isn't yeah. about, right? Like, yes, yeah, book, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is the larger context of it, because I think in a way that the um, the, the the story of slaves for peanuts doesn't make sense without the transatlantic slave trade. It needs yes. like all we have to understand the broad sweep of history. But yeah, the 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 Portuguese and later the Dutch and the British and the French, French come yeah. to co- yeah. coastal Senegal and come to. I think I, I talk about it in the book the 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 Portuguese their their first trip up the Gambia River. Uh, and, you know, then they're being sort of like repelled by people with like poison darts. And stuff yeah. Like that. Yes. So there is a connection quite early. So, you know, I think that's one of them. Their initial contacts is like, uh, you know, they steal their their initial contact is that they did, in fact, kidnap some people. Uh, but when they come back, they realize they're like, oh, we can't just like kidnap people. So they kind of develop trade relationships with right. people to, to sell slaves. Yeah. So let's, before we go any further, let's talk about this very strange thing called a peanut. But what are peanuts? So where do peanuts come from? They're such a mysterious thing. And you give us what you understand to be the history of the peanut and where the peanut comes from. I had no clue, no idea. And I think most of my listeners right now would just be, just love to know just a little bit about the peanut. Can you talk about that? But um, yeah, the peanut is a legume uh, and it comes from a part of South America, part of Bolivia, the Gran Chaco region. That's where it's it's its center of origin, where uh, biologists think it sort of developed. Um, and then from there, it spread out all over the continent. So it moved, you know, the, the archaeologists were finding peanuts in, in Incan graves and, or caves. They were finding them in coastal Brazil and you know, we think, or I think, it's the royal we, but I think that, um, uh, or, you know, and many botanists believe that even on Columbus's initial visit, he might have seen something that was like the peanut. He's, you know, there are all these, um, these texts where he writes about seeing different kinds of beans and, you know, different kinds of peas maybe it was a peanut right and but we know that very quickly the peanuts spread to um throughout the rest of the world right following i think you know spanish and portuguese mariners too so it spread to china it spread to the philippines it spread of course also to africa where again they already had trade relationships with people especially on the coast my story sort of took me on this strange tangent when my sort of main character, this guy, Walter Taylor, he'd work for this, um, this Boston shipmaster, you know, uh, exporting peanuts to, to New England and to New York. And so then I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, like trying to understand like why they were importing peanuts from, from West Africa. And I realized that, that uh, the peanuts suffered under a kind of persistent stigma over time that it had been related mostly to um to slaves so that the people felt i guess white people felt that it was enslaved food for the enslaved uh and yeah it just had a kind of stigma maybe i don't don't know if we can even think of a kind of corollary now you know and so then yeah after the civil war there was a particular peanut booster who had an you know who wanted the the u.s to grow more peanuts so in fact um yeah even in the i think it's in the 1840s or 1830s which i don't talk about in the book there was a a spike in american peanut um 
peanut importation from West Africa. And then later, the, 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 the U.S. government did establish some kind of tariffs on peanut importation, yes. obviously later to protect uh, sort of nascent industry. But it took some years. I think, you know, peanuts weren't really widely grown until the 20th century. So until then, yeah, they were, you know, peanuts were being widely grown in West Africa and really West Africa is not very far away from 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 the United States, sailing on the on the on the current just across, you know. But before peanuts became a, a food, a source of nutrition, peanut oil was what it was all about in West Africa. And I want to talk about that because Soap became very, very popular in France, in Paris. People didn't bathe at one point in time, and then it became very popular to bathe with soap. But they needed oils to make soap, and, and oil was becoming was a, needed some other substitutes for the different kinds of oils for whale blubber and all kinds of things that was being used. And somebody came across the idea, the way you would describe it in the book, that peanut oil could be used. I had no idea what a the, the sort of correlation between soap and then peanuts and then wow talk to us about that that whole sort of understanding that that need for oil and peanut oil. Yeah, so I think in the in the book I talk about the kind of um, the sort of it's you know it's by then really fully on the middle of the industrial revolution in Europe. And so there's a kind of large demand for oil in general, not just for soap at first. Right. Yeah. Uh, just um, oil to like grease the wheels of new machineries right, that are like, you know, pushing peasants off farms and and, you know, replacing their labor. Right. So yes. there are all these machines that need oiling. Um, you know, this initial period is also before the discovery of, of petrol. So even lighting oil. So you think about all the things that, you know, now that later replaced. So petrol really replaced all kinds of uses, like oil lamps, that kind of stuff. So and then, yeah, the soap is um, a part of it was the hygiene revolution. But a part of it was also the industrial revolution. People needed soap for manufacturers needed soap to like wash textiles, for instance, like like um, like wool, which had a, a lot of sort of oily, fatty substance on it. Right. Yeah. So um, the story of the peanut sort of, you know, fitting, you know, the, the people, people in Europe are kind of just looking for oil anywhere, right? Like, as you said, they're like killing whales, they're like importing, um, what do you call beef tallow from like yes. Russia or whatever, you know, like they're just like they're doing everything, they're doing the most. And um, yeah, so then they're looking for good sources of oil and the peanut does have, you know, certain varieties of peanut have, have a, a lot of oil in them. And then for the French, for their soap industry, because the British eventually settled on palm oil as kind of their thing. That's yes. like why we have that, that thing called palm olive, you know. The French were not happy with a sort of orangish, pinkish oil, you know, which is what yes. palm oil would make. And uh, in their sort of recipe for Savon de Marseille, uh, the peanut also is very closely, um, it's like it has a very close chemical formulation to olive oil. And so it was able to be substituted for olive oil in their Savon de Marseille for up to a certain percentage, which was really helpful to French industry, which was having trouble because of, you know, at the, at the time, I think there had been a number of um, frost that killed a lot of olive trees across, across not just Europe, the Mediterranean, but even the Levant, uh, you know, which is like the Middle East, essentially. So, um, yeah, so that's how peanut kind of emerged as the victor in, in French soap industry, it, especially, and became really like a target for French merchants. You know, here we are, you and I, smiling at one another because there's lots of sort of, I guess, somewhat humorous aspects to your story. But there's also an incredibly serious side to the story. And I want to get into that. Let me just let my listeners know, if you're just joining us, my guest is Jory Lewis. Her book is titled Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation and a crop that changed history. Let's go back and talk about you and your heritage you're descended from freed slaves am i right in that yeah i mean my on both sides of my family presumably they were enslaved 
we've only traced, you know, really well my father's side to a, yeah. a particular, a particular ancestor who fought in the Civil War and was freed. Yeah. So for you, starting this book, and, and I'm curious about this, Jory, but it, it, it's, it's the very, very beginnings for you when you when you set about going, OK, I'm going to write a book about peanuts. And then you went into it a little more. And of course, you come up with this very striking title, Slaves for Peanuts. It's a great title. Talk to me about the beginnings, about about deciding to write about peanuts and slaves. Yeah, you know, I didn't start out saying like I want to write about about peanuts. I think, um, yeah, they came together, right? You know, right. I think I started out maybe being in Senegal, living in Senegal, where I I I, I describe in the preface that I came with a fellowship to to write about food security. You know, this peanuts are you know the the apex predator of of the agricultural economy in in Senegal, and so of course I I spent a lot of time in the peanut basin trying to understand like kind of how it worked, how it was functioning. And yeah, um, the, the story I described in the book and the preface is that I had been spending a lot of time in a few particular villages. And in one, the farmers were trying to form a collective. And the man who uh, I thought and, and my friend who was an agronomist thought um, should be the president of this, 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 this farmers association was excluded from a leader, leadership position because he was descended from enslaved people. And though, although, of course, I knew there had been slavery within Africa, I never had, you know, I always had that understanding. Yes. I didn't realize it was sort of still sort of touching people's lives. You know, I might have, I did later write a sort of essay thinking about this uh, and how, how kind of people were still living uh, in some cases with the, the stigma, how it was still kind of affecting their lives today. So I guess I might have continued to write in the present, you know, sort of the present time, right? I might have done a book of reportage, but I wanted to reach back into history and to understand how all of it kind of came together. I think it's not just like how slaves and peanuts are intertwined, but how sla- how peanuts also conquered the rural economy, how peanuts yeah. became this 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 uh, uber crop and how colonialism sort of provided the provided the the means by which that happened. So I think it was it was like all of those things at once, I think, that happened that um, interested me and kind of drew me to the project. I should let my listeners know that the book is packed with maps and prints and photographs that must have been just I, I think because i just fascinated by these things must have been so enjoyable collating all those different references and putting them together in the book it, i'm sure it took an awful long time fun for me were the the images from the mission which we haven't talked about yet but it's it, um those images because it helped so much you know it was writing about this particular person this walter taylor and you know the 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 you know, freed slaves that he was working with. And it was so gratifying to find this kind of treasure trove of, of photos to kind of, to look in, look at them and kind of imagine what they were thinking. I think for me, that was, that was really the best part for me, you know, the other photos, the kind of colonial photos, they're, um, they're, you know, they're kind of like in the, they're in the ether of Senegal. Like the, you still uh, yeah. see them all. You yes. see them quite a bit sometimes. And so it was less interesting. And then, of course, the cover photo of the beautiful cover of the peanut is was also, you know, people don't realize how beautiful a plant yes. the peanut really is, you know, and that it's got these delicate little flowers. And it's just, yeah, it's just so lovely. I was so happy to be able to to use that photo on the or that illustration on the on the cover. You know, Jory, you, it, throughout this, the book, I mean, there's a story and I want to get to I want to because you've touched on the man's name a number of times now, a couple of times. And I want to get back to Walter Taylor because uh, it's such an important character in the book. But throughout the story or stories that you tell, you weave other stories into the story. And I love that. I love where you take us off somewhat on tangents and you give us little mm-hmm. little references here and little re- lovely stuff. It's, it's very engaging. Talk to us about Walter Taylor. You've mentioned him twice such an important character. Yeah, I I think that Walter Taylor, you know, I 
Walter Taylor was not in my initial proposal for the yeah. book, which is shocking for many people. But uh, he just emerged somehow through a small reference I read about him. And then I just went down a rabbit hole and then I managed to find 20 years of correspondence that he, he wrote between him and the, the director in France, the mission director. And I realized that I could um, really draw out his story because that's also part of when you're writing a book like this, just having enough source material to be able to, to, to sustain a narrative is really a challenge. But uh, Walter Taylor um, is a Sierra Leonean of liberated African origin uh, and even before starting this book, I did not know what liberated African was, but so I'll explain it here. Uh, so uh, in, in Sierra Leone, after the abolition of the slave trade, not slavery itself, but the trade, the British established a post uh, in Freetown to kind of police the coast for British slavers. And if they found uh, British slave ships, or, uh, you know, later there were also other reciprocal treaties with other countries as they also abolished the trade. They would bring uh, the people back to Freetown, right? So, and then people would uh, not be able to necessarily go back to their own country, but they would be, um, they would be established outside of, in a number of communities just outside of Freetown. So this, that's the story of Walter Taylor's parents. And he grew up in a community where, many people had uh, the same experience, right? So they'd all been, they'd all lived through this kind of, this kind of trauma of enslavement, this trauma of being packed onto a slave ship and, and have been sort of rescued, let's say, but not uh, allowed to, 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 to retake their former lives, right? Yeah. So they're still like undergoing this, this really critical displacement uh, and also probably a kind of, you know, new names, new ways of being, this kind of thing. So he had just like a fascinating childhood, right? Yes. Uh, and then he, he goes to, he eventually ends up in, uh, in Gore, which is an island off the coast of what's now Dakar. And, um, and it was a major sort of trade spot. And again, he was working for this, this uh, American shipmaster exporting peanuts. And from there, he, he meets a French Protestant it seems the way he describes it, like he had some kind of revelation, especially that seems to be inspired by, by seeing the workers on Gore, which uh, slavery has been abolished on Gore, of course, but he says, and many people also say that uh, the, the people once, the, once slavery had been abolished in 1848 still lived the same types of lives that they had. And I, there's, there's one historian said, who said they had the same measure of freedom that they had before, you know, yes. which is no freedom at all, right? No so, there's, so, yeah. there's, so he seems to be sort of aggrieved by this condition also, but also he sort of sees an opportunity for himself uh, to make a name for himself within the church, which is, I don't know, it's a kind of common way to make a name for yourself. Um, uh, and he, he moves to the capital, San Luis, to become uh, an evangelist. And later he becomes the, the sort of key director of the Protestant mission. And he starts a, a, key, a signature project called the Mission for Runaway Slaves or Shelter yes. for Runaway Slaves. So you've just touched on something which I've really wanted to get into talking to you about, and that is the church, the Catholic and the Protestant church, who play an incredibly important role in your story. As the church, Protestant and Catholic, has done throughout the centuries, in, in, certainly in the Western world, give me just an overview of how important the, both the, the Protestant and Catholic churches were in East Africa, it's, well, we're talking about the 17th, 18th century. Catholics sort of came with the administration, the French sort of French administration uh, by the mid. And so, yeah, they've been sort of having a lot of power forever. Right. This is yeah. the story of the Catholic Church in France. It's, it's not pretty. And it has like, you know, there there's a lot of sort of corruption. You know, sort of what's interesting about this time, too, is that Protestants who in Europe and in France, have been like persecuted for generations, maybe in the last, I think it's like, uh, you know, it's not very much time before this period that they're finally kind of allowed to live freely. Uh, and you have a number of sort of Protestants in the administration. 
And then as the Third Republic sort of starts, um, I think the Third Republic starts in the 1870s. Don't quote me on that. But like when the Third Republic starts, there's a even more of a kind of um, this this kind of movement to take sort of religion out of the state. So we get like what France is today, this these policies of laicite, uh, you know, sort of secularism. So those are also kind of trying to, in, to imprint themselves. Mm. So then the Protestants have like a very sort of strange position, you know, although they're deeply religious people, they're, you know, uh, they're often like on the side of these like secularist policies, or they're often like maybe trying to sort of, you know, trying to kind of jockey for influence. And especially in the context of Senegal, especially in Northern Senegal, which has been, um, you know, Islamized since, uh, you know, already nearly a thousand years at that time, right? So like, there's a really long tradition of Islam. Uh, you know, there, there are all these, there's a lot of kind of um, power struggles in between like all, let's say three religious groups. And then there are other, um, let's call them like, animist beliefs that sort of occur yes. further south so you know all of those things are kind of in a big soup together in general the catholics have more institutional support even then even even into the 1870s 1880s and the protestants are just like scrappy trying to like you know create, yes. you know claw at any power they can get whilst we're talking about power another another aspect which i think is worthwhile talking about and that is america's Involvement. America doesn't have, didn't have any colonies in in West Africa. Yet, America, America's involvement, incredibly important. Yeah. Well, America did have, um, it did have Liberia already by that time. So you know, there's there's a relationship between sort of the kind of conversations about. Uh, sort of Black American repatriation to Africa. There's yes. a lot happening that actually don't get into the book at all. You don't know, right? Yeah, yes, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. I I was so interested to find these um, documents from the American Council, who who is very interested in the political situation yeah. of Senegal. Yeah. It's not, uh, I, you know, I think he's also a New England shipmaster. That's his background. Uh, and I think there's, there's something to be said about this kind of consistent uh, and persistent connection between New England and West Africa and their interests there for, yes. um, for peanuts, but also for hides for leather, for beeswax, like any number of other products. So they're just interested in all of the shifts that are happening, but they don't have any, they don't have any interest then in expanding their, their own empire, the Americans. You know, Jory, there is so much to investigate in your book, which is why I loved reading it so much. It's page after page. I learned something. It, it, it really is a terrific read. I've yes, got to tell you this before, before we go. I've got to tell you this. I, I'm an avid reader, and I love books that have lots of notes and, and an extensive index. And your book has lots of notes and extensive index. And I love that. I think it's so important because I love to look up things. I love discovering something and then going, oh, she tells me about this. And I love that. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for writing such a splendid book. The title, Slaves for Peanuts, a story of conquest, liberation, and a crop that changed history. I've been talking to the author, Jory Lewis, Jory, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Next up, a conversation about coffee, shopping, murder, love. The outrageous new novel from Carlos Allende. Carlos Allende is my guest. His new novel is titled Coffee, Shopping, Murder, Love. Carlos, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Hi, thank you for having me. The very first thing that I have to tell you is that after reading this book, it has prompted me that I have to now read your other two novels because I am so intrigued by this that, yes, I've got to read more. Coming from Mexico, having uh, this is not your native tongue, English, uh -huh. but you, you understand it and you understand the nuances so incredibly well. And I'm just I'm, I'm curious to know for you, was that did, how does that work for you as a writer? Just just understanding those those colloquialisms and the nuances in language. 
while I pay a lot of attention, uh, uh, I mean, I, I think a mistake that a, a lot of readers do is trying to get inspiration only from reading and reading a lot. And yes, you should read a lot, but you should listen more. And what I do is I listen people. I was inspired by a lot of uh, uh, real people. Um, Charlie is inspired by a very good friend of mine um, who talks like that. He's not as selfish as and superficial as Charlie is, Charlie, yes, but yeah. he he digresses a lot. And I would just pay attention to what he says and uh, and and try to. Uh, dress myself in his skin when I start writing and right. what would uh, what would he say? And then I just start typing and, and the same with everyone else. So uh, let's set things up for my listeners and just give them a little overview of the story. This is the difficult part, Carlos, because I don't want to give too much away, but this is a, it's a murder mystery. It's a, it's a crime drama. It's, uh, it, it's all kinds of things wrapped up in this wonderful comedic novel yet at the same time there's something poignant there's something all there's a, there's a pathos in in your story and i want to get back to that in a little while but let's just set uh -huh. things up for my listeners there's two main characters one is Jignesh, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. You, you tell me. Jignesh? Yeah, that, that's a pronunciation. Yeah, yeah, as far as I know, that's a pronunciation. Jignesh. Yes. And then there's Charlie. Charlie Hayworth, and he's, he's from, Ken, from Kentucky? Yes, he's from Kentucky. Yes. Both of these gentlemen are gay characters, and both of them are struggling with their, their gayness, I guess. And, and, and again, this is something else we can go off on a tangent about. And a series of events happen that it's almost like a French farce in some respects. Because it's almost like one door opens and another character dies or pops in, or it's 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 there's so many things that go on. One thing leads to another. And it's just funny and it's fascinating. And at the same time, as I say, there's almost a, a sort of a, a poignant aspect to both of these characters. Have I kind of have I summarized it yes. without giving up too, yes. too much? Yes, I, I'm glad you got it. Yeah, there's poignancy there. There's anger. And uh, I wanted to write about uh, how um, being gay makes you angry and Fs you up a little bit. I'm trying to not to swear. You can swear. You can swear as much as you like. We can always okay. edit. Don't worry. Yes. So when when you're gay, you're off a little bit, and not because you're gay. It's because society rejects you. Now it is very different for new generations, like millennials and Generation Z. They have it differently. They were born in a world with internet and where they knew they were not alone. They were not the only gay people in, in the world. And uh, they they have the chance to marry nowadays. And I'm not saying that their life is perfect, uh, far from it, but their lives are very different from uh, previous generations. And I think I'm the uh, Generation X. Uh, I'm the last generation that was born in a world where you knew you had no hope and then everything changed. So the, those are my characters. They were born in a world where being gay was wrong, and they grew up with this uh, guilt and shame. And part of the inspiration of the book was this nightmare that I used to have when I was a teenager. I used to wake up, uh, well, I, I used to dream that I had killed someone <laughs> in the <laughs> kitchen, and my mom was in the living room watching TV, and I, had, I, I, I didn't know who I had killed or why, but I knew I had killed someone and I had to get rid of the body. And it was such a, a horrible feeling. And, uh, and I would wake up uh, thinking that I had actually killed someone. I just couldn't remember who. And with all this guilt and, and, and felt so much shame. And then I realized with time that uh, probably it was, I don't know, some sort of metaphor of my gayness and, and trying to hide it and trying to get rid of it. So I wanted to share that horrible feeling that uh, we uh, queer people, not only not only gay men, but all queer people uh, feel of shame and guilt that is not deserved, uh, but we grow up with. And you grow up thinking that you're uh, inadequate and wrong and guilty. 
And I think uh, a big reason why uh, gay men um, of my generation and, and previous, maybe not so much for younger uh, gay people, but uh, uh, I mean, I'm talking to people in their 40s or older, uh, yeah. they identify so much with villains is because you grow up thinking that you're a villain, that you yes. are a pervert and you are wrong and, and all that. And all of that has changed now. So that is a world where uh, Jignesh and, and Charlie lived. They grew up with guilt and shame. Jignesh uh, much more than, than Charlie, I, I guess, because Charlie can take advantage of his whiteness when he moves to California. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and that uh, prevents you from doing a lot of stuff. You think you're not as good as other people. And that's part of their, their problem that they grew up thinking that they're inappropriate. So all of this is not in the book. It's, it's like the feeling that I want yes. to transfer uh, their previous trauma and stuff. And I wanted to talk about that anger and resentment and bitterness, but I didn't want to make a, a boring, depressing book. So that's why it is a comedy. So you get that, but that is at a deeper level. In the, in the, in the superficial level, it's just a silly uh, comedy, a little bit like a checklist with gay people. Deeper level, it talks about their trauma and, and what it feels like to be uh, ashamed of, of yourself. Carlos, I want to congratulate you because I think you've done that. You succeeded incredibly well because thank you. On, on one hand, you have this amazing ability to have this nonstop farce. It's it's incredibly funny. But as we've already said, there's this deeper level to it. Another aspect, and I'd like to share with you an observation that I had from reading the book, and that is, I think, initially, as somebody that maybe doesn't have enough information about, let's say, gayness, could take the characters as being caricatures, except they're not in my experience, in, in my many years on this earth, both the characters that you, that you paint are so incredibly real and they are not caricatures in any sense. But you use all the, I guess, all the tropes, all the, all the different kinds of, for instance, uh -huh. Charlie, Charlie, Charlie uses so many cultural references. It's that Charlie uses so many cultural references. Can you talk about that? Because it's brilliantly done. I, I think I copied that from Balzac. Ah. Sometimes he uh, tries to describe someone uh, by referring to an actor, like so-and-so actor from so-and-so play. Uh, and it's not very frequent in Balzac. I just loved it the way he did it. And he was talking about plays. I had no idea. I had no idea who the... Uh, uh, um, actor or actress was. Uh, I just loved that idea. I said, I'm going to do that in a book one day. I'm going to have all these references to pop culture. And the opportunity arose with Charlie. And uh, my friend uh, who inspired Charlie makes that kind of references sometimes, not as often as Charlie, because Charlie is an exaggeration. In a way, he is a caricature. Uh, but uh, um, I tell my students uh, that we tend to believe that we don't like stereotypes, but we actually like stereotypes when they work, when, when yes. we like them, when they please us. And I think that's the uh, 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 magic trick that I do with Jignesh and Charlie. Uh, there are a little bit of stereotypes, but they're pleasant to hang around with, not because of what they do, but because they make us laugh. We don't judge characters for what they do. We judge them based on how they make us feel. Yes, yes. And they make us laugh a lot. And that's, that's why we always love these horrible people in comedy that can do be super selfish and, and mean, like Karen Walker in Will and Grace, for instance. She's awful, but she's awful to other people, not to you, the viewer. To the viewer, it makes you happy. It makes you laugh. And that's what is important. Well, you know, I said that the, my observation was that people could take them as caricatures. And yes, there, there, there is that sort of caricaturistic thing, particularly with, with Charlie. But I have to say this, in my experience, and, and, and Charlie to me is an amalgamation of two people that I know very, very well, I've known for many, uh -huh. many years, 
and and Charlie is exactly is almost picture perfect of two people that I know. I mean, you just meld them together, and that's Charlie. As for Jignesh, my goodness, what a character that you paint, and his family. You do such a remarkable job of this indian family even down to the curtains in the family's house down to the furniture i know that house i've been <laughs> to that house it's so realistic that's what's so incredibly powerful in your book carlos is you give us descriptions of places that i feel like i've already been to i've stepped into you know as they're driving along there's one point charlie they're driving is in a very climatic scene and charlie just switches conversation and says oh look at that house it's so beautiful it, it's crazy stuff but it's so real at the same time let me remind my listeners if you're just joining us my guest is carlos allende his book is titled it's his new novel coffee shopping murder love it's a terrific read carlos the characters, as we've already said, you, you, you knew somebody that, or you know somebody that kind of referenced to Charlie. What about Jignesh? Well, Jignesh, both, of, both characters are actually very much me. I took, ah. I took the uh, physical appearance of other people and a little bit of their personalities. And I guess every single character in that novel is a little bit of me. And I just took the words of myself <laughs> and yeah. I put them in Jignesh and Charlie. And uh, I, I also was inspired by uh, uh, um, a friend who's Indian. And uh, originally, I, I wanted to uh, write something dark and creepy. And I wanted to follow another friend. Uh, but then I thought, oh, it doesn't work. And then uh, this American, uh, Indian American friend, who's the sweetest, nicest person. He's very funny. He laughs all the time. Uh, I mean, he's very positive. Nothing like Jignesh. Uh, but he told me once that he had been arrested, and I was like, "What? How could that be possible? Like, like you're the nicest person I know." And then in my mind, he was going to tell me this story, but he never told me the story. And in my mind, I created this story. And I said, oh, I have to write the story of how he ended up being arrested. And that's when I started writing Jignesh. And because I didn't have enough information, I just put uh, the worst kind of ideas and thoughts that I could come up with. And he's jealous. And I think um, we're, well, well, I don't know about everyone else, but about me, sometimes you are jealous and envious and, and negative about other people. And I just... I just pour it there, but in a funny way, try to make fun of myself as well as, I guess, society and, and stuff. Yes. And, and, and that was Jignesh. And same with Charlie. I just, uh, instead of putting the, the, uh, uh, the good characteristics of them, I put the worst and, and it worked out. There's uh, some other characters, uh, Carlos, that, that for instance, uh, Jignesh's boss, uh, Mike, um, is, I, I, again, you paint such a perfect picture of this man. I know this man. It's, it's wonderful. Let me ask you this about the writing process for you, because you write in the first person times two. You give the first uh -huh. person for Jignesh and, and for Charlie. But the speed of the conversation, you, 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 go, you switch from backwards and forwards. But there's a sort of it's almost like like it's it's just like it's an adrenaline rush it just it's so fast it's so quick and i'm wondering about the actual writing how how you went about that did you at some point were you just hunched over your computer your laptop and just you couldn't you couldn't wait to get it down how how did that work for you i was back then i was uh attending a workshop uh uh, club, a writing club called uh, Writer's Block in, in Santa Monica. We were at the church. It was a nice, a really nice club. And uh, I loved it. And uh, we would go there every Wednesday. And that was the only time that I had to write. Because uh, wow. I was doing my, my PhD back then. And it was super busy. And I would take my tiny iPad and write. Oh. And I would be like, there was nothing to do there. Other, either, either you get on Facebook or you write. And everybody was quiet writing. And there was music, like nice, mellow music. And I would like, pa, 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 pa. And then um, 
I, I decided I'm just going to write about what I want to see in the novel. And I, I don't care if it doesn't make sense right now. And I'm just going to write these episodes and connect them later. And that's what I did. I had two hours every Wednesday and write nonstop. And then I would go home and maybe not think about the novel until next week. Or no, actually, I wouldn't type on the novel, but I would think about it a lot. Ah. I say that normally you write in the shower or you write while you're riding your bike or while, while you're getting to work or yes. something. And then you type when you sit on the computer. And that's what I did. I would think about the novel um, when I had free time, maybe when I was in bed about to sleep and then on Google and write it. And then, um, and then I would stitch together all the episodes. And I realized, well, many times I don't need to uh, write down what happened in between. I just need to connect them with a few words. Yes. yes. And uh, so I don't get a stock. And, uh, and that worked for me. And of course, the first draft was, was not very good. Uh, but, uh, but it was actually was a skeleton. It, was the, uh, it had the proper structure. And I just had to go back and edit, and uh, and I edited it a lot, lot, a lot, and uh, and then you have to become, uh, uh, well, you have to take off out all the boring parts, and uh, I focused on that. If this is not boring, if this doesn't provoke an emotional response, it's going out, and then I took out uh, the first four chapters. I uh, I just. Uh, took them uh, straight to the trash. I deleted them completely. And, and, and I liked them. They were good. And, and I hurt, yes, a little bit to, to, to take them to the trash, but they were not good enough uh, because they didn't start. You, you, they were funny and you got to know the characters, but they didn't establish the problem. And the problem needs to be established on the very first page or as soon as possible. Yes. And uh, the prologue, um, uh, was an afterthought. After I got many rejections, I started uh, trying to uh, to sell the book and writing agents and writing uh, uh, publishers and stuff. Uh, I got 94 rejections before it was accepted. And uh, but uh, after rejection number uh, 93, I thought, well, maybe my beginning is needs something different. So I wrote the prologue, and that made the the whole difference. Uh, and uh, the prologue starts with uh, uh, Charlie about to die. And that's where you get people like, oh, my God, what is going to happen to Charlie? Yes, yes. And, then, and yes. And from there on, you can't put the book down. You know, you're talking yeah. about how you're sort of like self-editing. I guess that's what you would call it. It's, it's what I call the economy of words, the way you've written your book. It's, it's beautifully done. Let's talk about we, we talked about the cultural references, but let's talk about the reality of your book. And, and there's a number of areas I want to cover here. The reality of the of the of the scenes, of the locations, of the people, of their of their psyche. It seems to me that that you had to do a certain amount of research. But at the same time, I'm thinking that you probably it was in, it was gut. You knew you knew what you needed to write. Talk to me about that, Carlos. Uh, for this one, I didn't want to do a lot of research because I did a lot of research for the two previous ones. One yeah. is about um, the world of reform in Mexico, and the other one is about the story of Venice, California. And this one, I was like, I'm tired of this. Yeah. But actually, I knew a lot because that's the world I lived in. I lived in, uh, I lived in Santa Monica and I was working in Venice. And uh, I mentioned briefly Santa Monica, but, uh, but mostly uh, well, the, the uh, Gignesh's office is set in Venice. And I, I uh, um, well, back then before the pandemic, we were very social and my husband and I just went all over LA visiting friends and attending, I don't know, plays and concerts and this and that during the weekend. Uh, uh, well, I make it sound fantastic, but uh, we were always uh, busy hanging out with friends. So it's, it's our life. It's LA and I would just listen. So I didn't need to do a lot of research <clears throat> because I already knew it. I, I was yes. living that life. And it, and it comes across that. That's what, again, I think makes the book so readable but so familiar at the same time and i want to i want to circle back to something that we talked about earlier on and that is 
the gay aspects, because it is, in some respects, I, I guess it could be called a gay novel. It's a funny novel. It's, it's, it's a murder mystery. There's all kinds, uh-huh. as, I, as I said, it's all kinds of things. How do you feel about people looking at this novel and, and labeling it a gay novel? How does that, how does that work for you? It is good in the sense that my target audience are gay men in, I would say, 40s and older, maybe 30s and older. And the more niche you are, the better your work will come out. And and that most of my readers right now are actually women. And a lot of uh, straight men have read it and and enjoyed it and liked it. Uh, But because I focus on on this, uh, I mean, it's like... uh, uh, product placing, if you know who your audience is and you really focus on that persona, yes. then you can attract other people that can identify, uh, can temporarily identify with that and, and, and get in the shoes of that. So for, for straight men, uh, they, they uh, I mean, so far they enjoy the novel, they laugh, they found it funny and, 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 and they like it. The people that have not liked the, the novel are uh, younger generations, that they ah. don't get the cultural references, for instance, yes. and, uh, and they think it's racist or they think it's too offensive or I don't know. And, um, well, I portray the racist things that we can say without realizing we are being wrong. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Charlie... Charlie does, uh, I mean, she uh, plays with the hair of a co-worker and he mentions how she doesn't think he's racist. And uh, and it's funny and it's wrong and it's sad. But it's very real. That's the thing. Yeah. You set up these scenarios that are so incredibly real. Talking about that, often I will say to an author, have you thought, I mean, have you sold this um as a screenplay are you are you trying to get a movie made oh i I would love to yeah whatever makes money (laughs) okay well that's what i was about to say to you because i often say this to to, to authors when i think a book is so good and and i play the part of being casting director and i always think to Uh myself oh i know but in your case carlos I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. Please don't sell this, even though I want you to make a lot of money out of this, because I've uh-huh. already I've already got these characters in my brain, and nobody, absolutely nobody's going to play them as well as my imagination. So <laughs> but I don't mean that seriously. Please sell it uh-huh. as much as you can. But okay. this, but what I'm trying to say to you is you paint these characters so realistically that I I, I in almost I almost can't imagine anybody playing them better than I can imagine them. Uh, well, if you if you go to YouTube and just Google, uh, look for the title Coffee Shopping Motor Love, will come yes. uh, an old video that I made with uh, my friend uh, who inspired uh, Charlie. I actually uh, made him read it because uh, uh, I, I, when I was writing the book in, in 2017, it was just a very early draft. It wasn't finished. It was a, just a little part. And I said, okay, let's, let's do this. I had an assignment for school and we had to write a, a short story. So the part where he tells uh, about Tommy is a part that he read. And, uh, and that's what that Charlie <laughs> sounds like. So look for it. Uh-huh. I look for that. Coffee yes. And Motor Love. And, yes. Uh, and maybe I hope, I hope that's the Charlie that you had in mind. Let's just reference to that that um, that part there about talking about Tommy because this is a story that Charlie talks about when he's in high school and Tommy is a is a as a bully in high school and and, uh-huh. and you it's a story within a story and this is what happens throughout the book you you sort of veer off Charlie loves to tell stories and and then all of a sudden Charlie will say and you mentioned this Charlie will say I I I I digress and he yes. says this it's like he's his catchphrase almost and then what's the other one sweet southern baby jesus southern i think baby it's, jesus. yes it's another one which is fabulous you really love it you had fun writing this didn't you oh yes yes i did yeah it was it was a lot of fun and one of my favorite characters was deirdre because she's so mean to jignesh and uh, she was inspired by a woman that i actually despised i couldn't stand that woman i just couldn't see her so that's why jignesh hates her and uh, while I was writing about her, I just ended up so in love with her. And I guess if I 
If I saw her again in real life, I would just go and hug her because it was so much fun, yeah. including her in my novel. Yes. And uh, yeah, I just loved uh, her. And uh, she's one of my favorite characters. She's, she's a minor character, appears by the end, but I liked her a lot. Very quickly, I want to just just circle back to something we talked about earlier on, and that is the the poignancy of your story. Uh-huh. Uh, because for me, there is it's it's and an, an having having known a number of people in my life that I reference as Charlie and and uh, Jignesh. There's something incredibly sad about their situations and and as we did touch on this earlier on and i'm just wondering for you for carlos allende whether putting that that sort of pathos that that poignancy into the story how important that was for you i it, it seems to me that that it lurks throughout the book and 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 i think i i i would like for people that get the book, not to overlook that, because I think it's incredibly uh, important. Uh, well, the, I, it was very important. That was the structure of the novel. That was, that's what makes it meaningful. We have to provoke pain to, yeah. to make people think and reflect. And, and you, un, unless a, a book uh, breaks your heart, it won't make you reflect. You won't find it meaningful. So yes. That was my, inten- my intention from the very beginning. Uh, the comedy is so that you take a rest and can consume the message without yes. the comedy you wouldn't be able to stick to this awful uh people <laughs> and uh but uh, but you do because it causes you pleasure being with them but at the same time uh it hurts you a little bit and uh, when they remind you about uh, about their lives and what they have been through and uh, and it's it's not that dramatic i think uh, we all uh, we uh, gay people are a little bit well, f- again, traumatized, and uh, we had hard lives. I, my life wasn't that hard, but uh, but it goes. I mean, when yes. people tell you, keep tell, keep telling you, man up, man up, man up, man up, and then you think you're bad. Uh, so that's that's basically their trauma. And yes, I wanted to uh, to bring that and uh, and also make a reflection of how things have changed. Uh, on, on one of the uh, final uh, chapters. Uh, that's that's what uh, Jignesh, Jignesh reflects on how he's part of that last generation that was born um, thinking he had no hope. So, I mean, people that were born before, uh, I don't know, the uh, 1950s, 1960s, something like that, they, they never had a chance to, to marry uh, uh, most people didn't have a chance. Most gay people didn't have to, a chance to have a permanent partner, a steady boyfriend. I mean, it's not that they didn't have a boyfriend, but they, they it wasn't right that they couldn't. They were they had to be in hiding all the time, and that just makes your life horrible and and, and makes you a bitter person. I think that that's the essence of the of the work. Their bitterness. Uh, yes. Carlos, I, I think a lot of people on first read, and, and if they're reading about the book, may may understand that there's a lot of sort of what they might consider to be in quotes offensive and almost obscene passages uh-huh. and references. And th- but of course, that's part of what makes this book so so delicious and so funny. But I should add for everybody. There is some very gruesome scenes in the book, and it, it despite the humor, that it, it, it's gruesome, it's 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 horrible in some respects, but it's such a good read. It is it is such a uh, congratulations. I, I, I could go Thank on you. giving you lots and lots of uh, 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 kudos here. Unfortunately, we only have a certain amount of time, so I'm going to have to say thank you very much for writing the book, and thank, thank you. you. For, and thank we're three hours apart, I think. So thank you so much for getting up reasonably early to talk to me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Carlos Allende has been my guest. His new novel is titled Coffee, Shopping, Murder, Love. We'll have details up on our website. Carlos, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I mean, it's been a pleasure. I love that you love the, the book. It's, it means a lot to me. <laughs> A big thank you to my guests, Jory Lewis and Carlos Allende, and a massive thank you to you for listening. Till next time, be well 
be safe. And you know it makes sense. Be nice. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind-the-scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you.